Okay, well, so we're we're tr- we're starting on a bit of a new track here with our podcast. We're going to continue doing those uh, sort of deep dives into into issues, um, and I think uh, mm-hmm. we we were really sort of liking the the feedback that we got on our last episode around the the water up near Waverly, the Elmville water. Uh, so all the value added yep. stuff that we threw in there with the writing and the photos and videos and all that sort of stuff and sort of the long form um, with uh, the podcast uh, underpinning the whole thing. Uh, so we're going to continue doing that. But then we also thought that we would start doing a more regular podcast, a little bit short, a little bit more raw, uh, unedited with my sort of heavy hand. Um, are we allowed to swear in this one? Yeah, I think I think I think I need we to are. know. <laughs> I, I think I yeah. Okay, okay, just checking because I am a bit of a potty mouth. Well, um, sorry to ruin my image to everybody else out there. Um, so the idea with this is that we'll sort of you know go over um, the high notes a little bit more, and probably the low notes too, but. Uh, of things that are happening yes and all everything in between everything yep. so little things that are happening uh, in our area around Simcoe County uh, also sort of highlighting um, things that are happening with our member organizations and we hope to have guests on from mm-hmm. them in the future and um, yeah so but first actually this is kind of like the first opportunity that we have to uh talk a little bit about how we're experiencing this crazy, very interesting time that we're living mm-hmm. through. It, well, the pandemic, it's interesting. COVID-19. <laughs> COVID-19 and 20 and 21. Um, it's interesting that you use the mm-hmm. word crazy, and I, I recognize that everybody's experiencing the same, but it doesn't feel so crazy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, At the beginning, this is, mm-hmm. it was such a, a, a removal from normal that it felt kind of so abnormal and now it just you know you kind of this is normal now right and so i wonder on the other side of this if the return to whatever then starts to feel this is really weird like sometimes i watch movies and i'm like that's not physical distancing like i don't <laughs> like, you i see things in it and mm, like i, I yeah. look at pictures of us as a family i'm like man i remember we used to do that and there was never really a consideration like extended family or whatnot so it's kind of interesting that there's this new lens and i wonder how much of this time I will miss on the other side of this, right? That I'll go, gosh, do you remember when it was nice that nobody really had yeah. anywhere to go? Um, again, I'm like I'm saying, not everybody, some people are looking forward to the other side of this and I'm not saying I'm not, but at the same time, I don't see, this just has become normal for me now. So, and I think I will miss pieces of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. See, seeing those little snippets of, of life before and mm-hmm. those those dangerous, reckless rebels congregating <laughs> in public areas. Yes. So, I mean, but but it's you know I, I've been struck by that too. It's 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 a weird uh, feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but speaking of the crazy, like we uh, we were just talking about our frustration <laughs> with with the cold yes, weather the cold. outside. You know, it being early May and living in Canada and our expectations that it'd be beautiful and warm and sunny outside, mm-hmm. totally reasonable. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that, that, cause I've been feeling that too. Uh, and I, you know, one of the things that in terms of that experience of normalcy, I, I was sort of, uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that has to do at all with 
the tension between sort of feeling uh, feeling the isolation, the confinement, and then you know wanting to get out and mm-hmm. uh, sort of have that release a little bit, and it not being as nice as you would like it to be. But I, actually, you know, but when pressed on it, this is sort of an experience that I go through every year as well, and I think probably most Canadians do too. <laughs> Except now you're a dog owner. Yeah, I've been And when a you're dog a dog owner. owner, it's quite different because, I mean, like, it's, uh, you know, I own a, a husky mix, as you know, but not everybody that listens does. And so she doesn't give a shit whether it's minus mm-hmm. 40 or, mm-hmm. you know, well, she hates the, the warm, actually. So she's like, I don't care. It's raining. It's snowing. It's really cold. Like strap on your your snowshoes let's go yeah. and i'm like i hate the cold and so like even if it's like 20 degrees outside and there's a breeze i'm like i could probably use like like a thicker jacket so yeah. this has become a, a challenge uh trying to navigate uh taking care of her and recognizing that it's like the the u.s postal service no what's the the phrase about like no wind no snow like yeah so it, it definitely uh grates on you but you feel an obligation to get out so yeah. regardless of what it's like you're just going right regardless so yeah yep and this is also uh so the uh everything sort of being thrown up in the air a little bit around the normalcy um there's a lot of um topics that we're sort of keeping a close eye on as well uh like a pretty early on in the pandemic there started to be a conversation around density and whether or not it is a risk uh, in terms of transmission, um, we've seen that. Uh, we, I, I think we've both been following that pretty closely because we both are pretty strong advocates of uh, smart, you know, complete communities, uh, which is also more dense, densely mm-hmm. uh, built and, and things like that. So following that with a little bit of concern. Um, and then the measures that... Uh, cities and towns can take some are taking some are not taking uh we just heard an interesting conversation on this uh on a webinar um which i guess we can get to uh pretty soon uh but measures that are being taken to enable people to physically distance safely so where you know sidewalks typically don't provide mm-hmm. enough space um some jurisdictions are blocking off portions of streets to allow people to pass by each other uh safely you know walking out into the street and not having to sort of come into contact or conflict with the uh, traffic mm-hmm. these sorts of things um right, what what are your thoughts on on that uh well let's start with the density part first there's a oh, there, geez don't give me a broad question because you know is, i won't just stop talking well it is a pretty broad, yeah it is very broad uh but but let's start maybe um let's start with the density question because that's a pretty important one i think and uh we're seeing it pushed pushed uh um, almost like a concerted organized effort i suspect that's uh you know at least partially true um to push that narrative but it's not a very strong argument when you when you dig into it a little mm-hmm. bit. And one of the uh, guests on the webinar that we uh, were just watching um, has a great sort of phrase about that that distinguishes between density and something else. You want to address that? Density and crowding. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, there's a difference between density and crowding and uh, crowding means people have enough space either within their community or within their home. Um, you can have crowding uh, in a rural setting as easily as you can in a uh, urban setting. And one way to think of that is a undersized community center, right? In a rural setting, you can maybe fit 50 people, you have an event and it's crowded and it's small and you can't really do anything in that community center of any consequence because there's just too many people uh, and not enough space to, to be able to hold functions, that sort of thing. So you can have crowding in mm-hmm. kind of any place and uh, doesn't necessarily have to mean that you have density. And um, density also is kind of like uh, people assume that all density is created equal. And um, that would be like saying, you know, I'm a big pasta fan, especially uh, fettuccine Alfredo. So anybody that likes pasta and carbs like I do uh, knows that not all uh, fettuccine Alfredos are created equally. Um, And so you have some great great versions of density that are walkable there's this green space that there's you know people can access things um like hardware stores and local shops and and they have places to go within their community and then you can have densities that's just all high rises and it's really just looking at the quantitative aspect of the community like how many people you can stuff in a place Mm -hmm. versus the qualitative side of it, which is how good is this place to house the number of people that we need to house. And so I think what we see in a lot of Canada is a very quantitative approach to um, density, which makes everybody go, ugh, density is awful. It's like going to the worst Italian restaurant in your neighborhood and going, ooh, whoever likes Italian food, but really just got bad Italian food, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If you went to another place, you might actually really like it. So... um, that's that's kind of thing. And that makes the density conversation really difficult because our experience in most of Canada is a rural or suburban kind of experience. And density comes with the big, bad cities and even the big, bad cities and even the uh, more suburban areas really just don't understand how to make density look nice, feel nice to be into. If you then look at other examples of density, like places in Europe or even Latin America, density doesn't feel crowded. <laughs> it feels like there's people around for sure, but there's also space. There's also areas where you're not having to feel crammed. And I find that um, a lot of the what we see here is density that feels crowded and crammed and overpowering, almost like the like the big towers and everything are looking over you. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's how I think about it. Yeah, and I mean, some of the arguments... Uh that are being pushed out there are, are pointing to the fact that a place like New York City uh, is sort of the center of the outbreak in the U.S. And of course, New York City is relatively dense. Uh, but those arguments also ignore the fact that there are areas in the world such as Seoul, South Korea, uh, to name one, there's plenty others uh, that are considerably more dense than New York City, which have um, been very successful in countering um, the transmission of the virus. Uh, so it has more to do, I think, with how 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 space is organized and the relationships mm-hmm. that are facilitated by that organization. Um, mm-hmm. I mean. And in, in, as you were talking there, I was thinking I, I, I'm a big fan of a podcast called The War on Cars. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, 
It's uh, titled uh, Intentionally Provocative out there for you who are screaming and uh, raging. Um, although I guess probably most Don't people listening to this SUV. won't take too much offense. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, yeah. But but really, it's it's looking at the at the role that cars play in our culture, in our society, and um, and one of the things that they highlight is the amount of space that we give to cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, in terms of crowding as a pedestrian or on a bicycle, you can feel quite crowded, even though there's a ton of space around mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so, you know, I think many people. Uh, listening to this who are in our area will recognize um, a lot of this space. I live near a um, a number of roads, really, they're almost all around, but where you'll have like two lane, two lanes of traffic going either direction, and then you'll have a center turn lane. And that center turn lane, I mean, first of all, those two lanes in either direction, four lanes total, well, five lanes with the center, uh, really for the volume of traffic aren't needed. They're, they're based on the assumption that they'll be needed in the future, mm-hmm. which is shitty design if you ask mm-hmm. me. Uh, but the center, and, and even worse, exactly like highlighting the shitty design of it, planning of it, the center turn lane uh, exists throughout the uh, stretch of the road, even in areas where there's no option to turn anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's no use mm-hmm. for it. Uh, so back to the point that I was making, you know, if you're a pedestrian or a cyclist on some of these uh, roads now, they're starting to put sharrows. Um, you'll be on these things and you'll, you'll definitely feel uh, under pressure in terms of the amount of space that you have. Mm-hmm. But there's tons of space around you. It's just it's it's kind of given to uses which aren't uh, useful. Well, it's it's really, lack uh, of space for you. people by right. design. Really, it's not. It, it, another way right. to flip it, instead of saying we give a lot of space to cars, is to say we intentionally don't give a lot of space to people. And so, um, and that right. and goes back to another thing we were saying about density and COVID. Really underpinning that as well is the amount of inequity in the community. So mm-hmm. you can see kind of boroughs of New York City are not responding the same way as others are. And areas where mm-hmm. there is more inequity and more poverty is responding a lot differently than maybe others. And even in some of mm-hmm. the suburban communities where there's inequity issues or inequity doesn't always necessarily mean um uh, poverty, in a sense, it can also mean in, in equal access to get to healthcare or to services mm-hmm. or whatever. So, you know, broadening that that scope of it, you can start to see that how uh, inequitable community also kind of impacts its response. So, mm-hmm. looking at like, um, you know, my mom's a senior; she's almost eighty, and thinking about the amount of space that is given to her. Or children really that work that kind of move at a slower pace that maybe aren't as uh, aware of their surroundings, you start to see that when you feel crowded and pressured, it's again by design because maybe you need a walker or you have a stroller that you're taking your kids down the street and the sidewalks are narrow. Why the sidewalks narrow? Well, there's no rule saying that sidewalks can only be a certain size. That was design. <laughs> feature that they decided to only make it a certain size. You could, you can, you know, take a whole, uh, uh, a square and make it just pedestrian friendly, but you've made it a very small size so that people that would use the sidewalk and that would get out into their community 
and in places that's considered more dense really don't feel welcome. And then that kind of precipitates into, mm. I don't get outside, I don't meet my community. My community feels crowded because whenever I go on the fricking sidewalk, I have to pull onto the grass to let someone else go by because I've got a stroller and they've got a bike. And, you know, that is the kind of stuff, those daily grinds that make your, your city or community feel like there's not enough. And, and, um, yeah, so, so all of that kind of grows into it. And that's not the fault of having an apartment building in your neighborhood. That's the fault of not including enough space for the people that are going in the apartment building and give, again, giving it to, uh, to mostly cars or, or vehicles. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I want to, um, uh, just, uh, mention that, uh, to people listening, uh, the resources that we mentioned on here, um, we'll post links to on the episode page for this. So you can head to our website, simcoecountygreenbelt.ca and find links, the link that, uh, so the, the, the webinar that I was just mentioning, uh, was put on by parachute which actually I was unfamiliar with uh, prior to this webinar. Were you, had you known about Parachute? Yeah, but I don't want to make you feel bad. Okay. All right. Uh, anyways, we'll, we'll put the link up um, on our website. Uh, there's, there, there's a recording of the webinar. It's a Zoomcast. Uh, and uh, so you can, you can find it and watch it. It's excellent. And, the attendees, let me see here, were, or the panelists were uh, Bartek uh, Komorowski, a planning advisor, road safety and human behavior for uh, the city of Montreal. Linda Rothman, assistant professor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Linda Rothman, assistant professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. And uh, Margaret's uh, one of Margaret's favorite uh, thinkers on urbanism, Brent Todarian, urban design and planning consultant, Todarian Urban Works. Uh, he's based out of Vancouver, but he does work all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, really excellent podcast. Definitely uh, worth checking out. It's, uh, or sorry, webinar. They kept it relatively short, which is going to be a challenge for Margaret and I here, right? So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, we, we usually kind of, <laughs> yeah, unleash the hordes. Yeah. The horde, too. Yes. Yes. Um, one thing I want to just pick up on here is that some people, um, when they hear the word green belt, they think about obviously Ontario's green belt, and then they wonder why you and I would be talking about equity in communities, why we're talking about uh, sidewalks mm. and community design and everything else. And funny enough, my, oldest decided he has to do this genius hour project and um decided to do it on the green belt i don't know where he got that inspiration from i didn't tell him to by the mm. way but he just decided to do it but interestingly I, I he wanted to really get into the history and so i knew some of the stuff like for example green belts are all over the world um ontario has a provincial green belt but there's also regional green belts like ottawa has one and waterloo has one um and even, in fact, there is a small green belt between the city of Barrie and the township of Springwater. So green belts, uh, but as we're getting to the history, was learning that, you know, green belts, meaning areas where development wasn't supposed to go and were going to be kept in kind of some natural form, have been used as far back as the Roman Empire. And they were a way to help ensure that people, whether they lived in cities or rural communities, one, had access to nature, but also constrained growth in a way that didn't impact on farmland and nature and water 
uh, to the detriment of the the people. So London has one of the oldest um, green belts around its city. Uh, Berlin has a really cool one because its green belt actually is where the Iron Curtain used to be. Um, so hmm. green belts actually can play into urban design. They play into the overall health of a community and um, it's really hard to talk about green belts without getting into what they can provide for the community as far as equity, access to nature, clean air, water, da 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 da. Uh, now climate uh, benefits as well, but also the the other side of that coin is how does that then affect the quality of the community that's impacted by the green belt? So it's really hard to not talk about one without the other because they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? So I just wanted to kind of put that out there because I feel right. sometimes that people are like, you're green belt people. Why are you talking about community design? And really a green belt is a very old, uh, old solution that has been proven time and time again to work. Um, but everybody thinks it's this new radical idea and it, it really has, it's really not. Right. And the catalyst for the green belt in Ontario had to do with the, the, the sort of outward pressure happening uh, from urban areas, particularly specifically Toronto, the GTA, mm-hmm. uh, and the impacts of that on natural heritage, um, including, yeah. you know, the agricultural system. Um, and I mean, that's a, that's a key attribute uh, of the green belt as well as it enhances uh, food security, right? Which is a big topic now going forward. I meant to pull up a number of resources because I've, I keep on seeing them pop up here and there uh, of uh, sort of concerns, stories about the impact that this has had on the supply chain. You know, there's meat plants mm-hmm. shutting down, um, things like that for uh, because of transmission in there, but then there's also just the things have clogged up because with a long supply chain, you kind of need everything to continue functioning smoothly. If there's a cinch point anywhere, it backs up real quick and it's hard to, hard to free that. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I did a fair a, a fair bit of my educational background had to do with disaster preparedness uh, and planning. Um, I actually TA'd a, a fourth year course in it as well. Uh, in grad school, and I mean, one of the one of the key attributes of a a stable system or a resilient system is it's decentralized. It's spread out um, in in um, where whereas a, a more brittle structure is a uh, top down, very hierarchical. If you cut off the head, it's done. Right, everything falls mm-hmm, apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as food security goes, this is you know, this is really big. This is going to be a pretty big impact coming up. Food prices are going to rise. Uh, there's they're having a lot of trouble getting, um, uh, you know, people in the fields uh, to be able to sort of plant, and and that's going to probably continue for a while. Uh, so we're going to see a big sort of sticker shock in, in the grocery markets, um, and so. Uh, we recently saw the provincial government come out and say that uh, community gardens are now what they were de- they were deemed an essential service uh, and, mm-hmm. and allowed to reopen. And there's a nascent organizing effort in Barrie around backyard gardens. Uh, Brampton, actually, where uh, former Barrie city councilor uh, Patrick Brown is now mayor, has been doing a lot with uh, backyard gardens and, and, and supporting people who want to do that. So sort of decentralizing that 
encouraging people to be able to grow their own food and then supporting local agriculture in the surrounding uh in in the area surrounding urban uh centers is crucial for our food security and for our resilience going forward uh not only are you uh, increasing the number of options in terms of uh, food supply, but you're plowing that money back into your local economy. We talk about this a lot as a rationale behind the green belt and how it supports agriculture, specifically local agriculture. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And t- two things that that uh, I was told a while ago, which really sometimes can keep me up at nights and I probably shouldn't add to the anxiety of everybody that's listening. But uh, Ontario Farmland Trust did a study, gosh, I'm going to say like six, seven years ago. And at the time we were losing like 175 acres of farmland a day in Canada, uh, mostly to urban use. And um, they had projected that if that farmland uh, trend, that loss continues that by 2031, Canada would not have enough farmland to feed itself. Uh, mm-hmm. to be completely sustainable and not reliant on imports. Now, mind, mind you, we do do a lot of importing in food, but we wouldn't have the land base to change that if if things didn't change. We have gone down a little bit. I think we're just over 100 acres a day. I'm going to say we're 120, 115. Anyways, it's over 100 acres a day, so it's, it's reduced. Um, so that window's probably lengthened a little bit. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing, a, a farmer... Uh, and an agronomist, I believe was his name, talked to me about someone who studies kind of like agriculture and the economics of agriculture, and I believe also a little bit of the soil as well. Um, Sorry, apologies to agronomists if I got your job wrong. Um, But uh, anyways, they were saying like the topsoil and farmland, you know, that's that's a process that took 150, 200 years to to develop. And so he said to me, whenever you go to the garden center and you buy topsoil in a bag, realize that came from somewhere that was destroyed. That wasn't just, you know, you don't just go somewhere and go, oh, there's a huge topsoil uh, deposit way down where else. Because whenever they take over farmland for urban uses, they scrape down like several feet and all of that mm-hmm. goes. And then they mm-hmm. put, you know, sand, gravel, whatever else to build like a, a, a base, right? So that, that dirt has to go somewhere and that dirt just can't be replaced. So you need to be thinking about when you, when we lose farmland and we lose that topsoil, sure, you can probably, you know, add manure to something and you can, you can re-nourish the soil for sure. But that's not just an immediate process, right? That that all of a sudden any piece of land in Canada is able to grow any type of crop we want. That's really not the reality. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, just, just thinking about the loss of that and how it's not recoverable, not immediately, right? Um, yeah, so yeah. Those, are, those are kind of some things that I think about. And that's partially why there's a lot of reasons why we support like kind of the Greenbelt expansion, but it's also to say farmland regardless of what it grows now, we need to keep that because it is a finite resource, similar to water, similar to green space. These things aren't infinite. They aren't replaceable. Um, Once they're gone and they're covered over with pavement and concrete, to recapture them and reclaim them back to its natural form, to give them the same function they were doing, it's, it's, impossible. Sure, you can put a couple trees on it and makes yeah. it looks nice and you've rehabilitated it, as they say, but does it do the exact same function with the same amount of habitat? Da, 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 da? No, never. It doesn't, right? It, it, and mm. people need to recognize that when you've lost it, it's actually gone. 
Yeah. Um, all right, so we we're, to everybody we're, <laughs> we're coming up uh, to half an hour here, so um, Holy I'm gonna crap. I'm gonna try and move Stop it along a little so quicker. I know time goes time flies. Um, back to the so uh, just to point out though that if people are interested in that organizing effort happening in Barry around backyard gardening, it is a Facebook group called Barry Urban Gardeners. You can find them yes. at that on Facebook. And uh, so that's very cool. A couple of things that I wanted to uh, touch on quickly uh, and specifically around the options part that we were just talking about with uh, with food security and uh, local agriculture also is and, and looping it back to the area, the jurisdictions that are uh, providing more space. Uh, specifically sort of closing off portions of streets and things like that for pedestrians and cyclists to be able to uh, physically distance safely. Um, mm -hmm. There and, and there was talk on the this webinar uh, that we referenced earlier uh, from Parachute about uh, the short-term and long-term possibilities of doing that. And... So I wanted to kind of hit a couple of things uh, in Barrie, for instance, where I live, uh, we're not as compact a community. So in terms of space, there are there's a little bit more space. I, I, I still don't think it's safe. I often when I'm out walking the dog or, or biking around with the, with my kids, I often do have to go out onto the street to pass by other people. It's not as bad as I think it would be downtown Toronto or places like that. So the immediate need for that physical distancing isn't necessarily as urgent here. I still think it's present. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's a really important case to be made for doing this uh, in terms of the long-term uh, needs of our communities. Uh, a couple of reasons for that being that... Uh, uh, it's possible I know there's sort of arguments back and forth but it's possible that the way that we work is going to change as a result of this pandemic uh, more people working from home and whatnot uh, which changes our uh, the demand for our street use uh, so recognizing that and and um, but I think the more important thing uh, in terms of the options available is is providing those options to people, those those options of being able to get to uh, the grocery store, which is a problem in the in, in a suburban, as you mentioned, in a suburban neighborhood, it's effectively built so that you need you rely on your car to get your basic amenities. And that's a huge vulnerability. You know, so if mm -hmm. if for whatever Absolutely. reason you're not able to use your car to get somewhere. Um, if there's a washout on a road or, you know, some other sort of natural disaster happens or what have you, you're stuck. You're, you're in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So, so providing, um, I know a washout that you're not going to be able to get past that on your, you know, by walking or taking your bike either, but so bad example. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, but it is, I, I mean, you could, stands. you could possibly, <laughs> You could yeah. better than you could in a car. Let's put it that way. Right, right, <laughs> perhaps. And but there's other examples of why you might not be able to use your car, and uh, providing providing people with options is 
the core of building resilience uh, in communities, and we yeah. and we need options. We need that those resilience resilient characteristics in our communities, because we know what's coming down the pipeline is not going to be good, right? One of the things that I mm-hmm. uh, appreciated about uh, the webinar also was they characterized what we're going through right now as a dress rehearsal for uh, the impacts of climate change, and it's true. And and cities that recognize this as a lesson and learn from that and implement policies, uh, make decisions based around those lessons are going to be better suited uh, to confront those those impacts. And they're acting in the best interest of their public uh, doing so. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's that's a really yeah. key thing, you know. So there's that long term uh, framing, uh, that long term way of looking at the decisions that uh, can be made now. They may not, they may may might not be uh, immediately necessary to address the challenges of COVID nineteen, but chances are there's a pretty strong case that they'll be necessary to address the challenges of uh, climate change. Well, and I think, too, that the one point that was made by uh, by Brent Todarian was that, you know, the, the communities that are used to experimenting and trying something new are more likely to continue to do so as old ways of doing things are no longer viable options. So right now, nobody is expecting normal. Nobody's expecting mm-hmm. what happened in last May. So... If the roads are being used differently, if people are accessing nature differently, now is the time to experiment because one of the issues with trying something new was nobody wanted to leave the comfort of now. Mm -hmm. There is no comfort of now, Mm -hmm. right? People are looking forward. So they're not going to mind as much that you're making more space for bikes on roads because they're using their bikes more often, their home more often. They're like, oh, this is what it's like because there's no need to keep the status quo right now. It's it's pretty much thrown out the window. And as you were saying, with with, with climate change, there will be no normal that we can uh, project into. So like 2025 might not look anything like 2026 and, you know, the the seasons and the precipitation and, and all of that sort of thing will be different and will require creative solutions. So if your municipality, if your neighborhood group um, isn't willing to experiment and try something new now, you know, when will be the right time? When you absolutely are forced to, you have Mm -hmm. no option. That's not resiliency, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, uh, we need to wrap this up because we're, we're as usual, we're uh, stretching things on a little bit long here. Um, are there, is there anything, anything you want to link to or sort of direct people to as being an interesting resource? Um, no, but can I just throw to something else quickly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're mm-hmm. waiting for this. Um, so we were kind of talking about like, you know, there is no new normal. We got to think about uh, what happens next. And I think as we follow through those stages of grief, there comes the acceptance and then the building new. And I something that you and I are involved in that's just kind of started to kind of launch into probably the next week's topic, we'll be talking a little bit more about this, is we're kind of looking already 
at what does post-COVID look like? What are some of the opportunities municipalities can build into their long-term planning that community groups can put into their long-term planning that actually makes Mm -hmm. our communities better and equitable and addresses that qualitative issue that we're having, um, that we're having problems with and we're seeing kind of stripped bare, um, in, in across the across the globe. So uh, I'm kind of excited about that to figure out how to make a plan with others and other stakeholders. Um, and, you know, there's forces out there that uh, are wanting to very much go back to let's prioritize cars, let's prioritize uh, profits of developers, let's prioritize housing over farmland, over water, over community safety, um, they are already working very hard uh, to get that message out. And I th- have no issue with providing homes for people, but uh, we need to be looking at the types of homes that we need that are equitable, that actually are affordable and not just because they're a certain percentage of a median income of whatever, like, you know, they, we need to start addressing those kind of things for our seniors and mm-hmm. for low income um, people. So, it's really an interesting kind of thing to a, a thought project to kind of get into to say, okay, how, how can we make things better and how can we launch into something better? Like you were saying about resiliency is about being mm-hmm. able to bounce back. What if we bounce, bounce to better? Um, yeah. So that's something that I just wanted to kind of throw out there that we might be talking about going forward. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I had a whole bunch of uh, links I'd saved, but uh, I think yeah, I mean, most of them have to do with how uh, how certain jurisdictions are uh, are taking action. And um, I had some thoughts on how others are not taking action, which I've sort of touched on a little bit. Uh, I, you know, I wish there was more uh, uh, action being taken in our area. There doesn't seem to be. It seems to be more sort of status quo, you know, sort of measures taken to, uh, address, um, uh, the COVID-19, but, uh, not really, not really sort of taking the extra steps, uh, beyond that to, um, improve the, the community. Um, one thing oh, that I sorry, did want to mention, one... which I've been, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say right. a research project for those that are listening that have gotten through our uh, droning on for this long is if you're thinking about your community and wanting to make it better and maybe your municipality isn't uh, leaders as you want, look up tactical urbanism and um, I don't mm. know, I'll just throw that out there. I'm not going to define it for you. Just just go look into tactical urbanism mm. and see some examples and then maybe yeah. that might inspire you a little bit. Yeah. Cool. Uh, another, uh, great, uh, resource is a podcast, uh, from the overhead wire. It's, um, called the talking headways podcast, which I have been absolutely loving. Uh, there is an episode that is focused on the slow streets initiative in Oakland, uh, which was pretty, pretty quick out of the gate with, uh, providing more spaces for their citizens. Um, and uh, it's really fantastic. And one of the things that they go into on the on the episode, I'll provide a link to it on the on the page for this, is how the how the town, how the city engages with the community. And 
it's it's really cool. It's uh, pretty proactive. We found some other examples of it as well. We're talking to a few people from uh, from some uh, jurisdictions where they're doing other interesting things. And we hope to have them on future podcasts, but uh, it's very early going. So fingers crossed for that. Anyways, let's wrap up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hitting the 40 minute mark here, I think. So all right, go figure. <laughs> yeah, shall we? So stay safe out there, everyone. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, in the future going forward, I think we'll, we'll try and orient this more towards sort of local issues, uh, what's going on on the ground here, as we said. Um, and, uh, yeah, look forward to doing that. 